Welcome to Living Out Loud, Storytelling for Social Change, the podcast where we come together as a community to share our stories and consider alternative perspectives on a wide range of topics. By sharing our stories, each and every one of us can help create the world we want to live in. Storytelling has the power to open minds, touch hearts, and inspire empathy and solidarity. It can move us to think and then act. The opinions and views expressed in this podcast are those of the faculty, staff, and student guests of each episode, but do not necessarily represent the views of Merrimack College. Hello, I'm Deborah Michaels, Director of Women's and Gender Studies, and this is Living Out Loud, Storytelling for Social Change. Today's episode is a conversation in honor of Black History Month, dealing with some of the thorny issues of our history and their connections to the present. I'm very fortunate to have with me Gabby Womack, a Merrimack College librarian and author of a wonderful presentation entitled, How Fears of Passing Changed the 1930 U.S. Census. Hey, Gabby. Thanks for having me. Great, and also with us is Tiana Lawrence, who is a class of 2020 graduate and a current graduate student in the Community Engagement Program at Merrimack and a fellow with the Mel King Institute for Community Building, inspired by the work of the civil rights activist. Hi, Tiana, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm excited for this conversation today. Great, happy to have you both here. So first, Gabby, tell us a little bit about the presentation you've created on the US 1930 census and its removal of the word mulatto. I think this is a really important topic when we think about the debates around the current US census and race and immigration and the issues that have come up there. Of course, yeah. So I'm someone who identifies as Afro-Latina and I'm racially mixed. So my ancestors are racially mixed on both sides of my family, and we have often been asked how we identify ourselves on documentation, how the census identifies us, which is is confusing not only because of race, but because of our um, ancestors' nationalities as well, et cetera. But with the situation that I noticed on here, it popped up when I was doing some uh, ancestry work. So I was doing some background research on my family. I noticed... Uh, that there was a weird category switch on my great-grandfather's census records. His uh, census record for his family originally said that they were all mulatto. Then you fast forward to 1930, and then it says Negro for all of the family members. I was a bit confused about why this happened, um, and I was starting to think about the ways in which people kept asking me how I identified and how the census actually works and everything. And I thought, okay, well, around the the 90s, 2000s is when people started paying more attention to like multiculturalism and all of that stuff. But beforehand, everyone was like, pick a side. You black, you white, don't, there is no in between. And if they did allow you to pick in between, it just meant that you didn't belong anywhere, you know? So this is a new avenue that I think a lot of people are thinking about more and more now that there are more mixed couples and more mixed children. So my presentation begins with that discovery and then it goes into stories of passers, articles depicting public sentiment, uh, the history of mulatto on the census, race science, eugenics, and it also goes into law and media connected to this because I want to show how public sentiment is directly connected to policy, to government, to laws, and to the ways in which we 
I just lost my spot. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. I'll just, so, just so for people who are listening and may not know what all these categories mean that we're talking about, could you share your definition of both mulatto and passing? Yeah. So mulatto is meaning, um, it is a word meaning mule. And this is just meaning uh, a person who is mixed. Uh, the mule idea came out because it was this idea that mixed race people could not procreate. Uh, it was the idea that they were somehow infertile. Um, and this is coming out of the 1800s. So that's a part of the history of this race science. Whereas passing is more about um, in this context is about race. It's about someone who is classified as black, uh, who is light-skinned enough to look like a white person. And therefore function in society as if they are white. Deanna, I know this is a subject you have a lot to say about, so uh, tell me your thoughts. Um, so again, I'm also mixed race. I'm Portuguese, French, and African-American. Um, I, I think the definition of mulatto is very important to how I self-identify. Um, I always say I'm French, Portuguese, and Black. I never have said I'm mulatto. I never have said I'm mixed race until now. Um, and I think that's important to me because I refuse to identify myself as a, a mule because there is a historical um, significance to that word. Um, it's derogatory, it's offensive, um, it's invalidating. And I think that's so important to how people um, define themselves. And I personally refuse to um, attach myself to such a word. And so I take into account my ethnicity and my background and where both sides of my family are from rather than using a derogatory term. Um, and I think that's very important to how people view you, how people view uh, a larger body of people as well. Um, and as far as passing, I have pretty brown skin um, <laughs> in terms of I'm I'm not light, I'm not on the lighter side. And so I have never had this um, so-called privilege of passing. I don't think I ever would want to, um, but I know there's very much significance to why people have done it and why black people have chose to um, pass. Um, but in my own experiences, I've never had that. I don't wanna call it a privilege, it kind of is in this society, um, but I've never had that chance and I've seen people do it um, and I understand why, but I, it also saddens me um, to erase your blackness. I would love to come back to this after we talk a little bit more about some of Gabby's research about the people you've seen do it and, and how it saddens you. And just as a historian, I wanted to add, nobody today would use that term, um, mulatto, to talk about um, people who are mixed race, biracial, multiracial, whatever, however you want to configure things. Nobody uses that term, but it, but its historical significance matters here. And they were still using it up until the, you know, earlier part of the 20th century, up until the part of your study, really, um, Gabby. So, um, Let's talk a little bit about more about your study and about the census, um, because the census is really kind of um, it's kind of emotionally charged to think about the census. It's supposed to be this very um, objective collection of data. Right. It's just supposed to be data. And I know the scientists listening to us would say, well, data is always objective, except the collectors are not right? The collectors of data have biases and, and so forth. And we've seen this in the history of the 
the census um, as well. I mean, you mentioned in your study, the very first census is connected to the three-fifths compromise. So, so um, you know, and, and it is, it is not a, a, it is also connected to how many representatives we get in government. So for those reasons, I think the census, in fact, becomes more about politics sometimes than an accurate picture of who the citizens of this country are. Could you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So you're right. Yes, it did start with a three-fifths compromise in order for um, us to have a supposedly equal representation, um, especially for the South. And another part of this is that um, they were also divvying up who was going to be paying what for the war, the Revolutionary War. And so when it comes down to paying the bill, you know, not everybody wants to saddle up. And uh, what do you do when you want to do something like that? You got to kind of skew the numbers. So there's a little bit of um, politics from the very beginning. Uh, the, the part that gets, um, I guess, murky for me based on my research is that I noticed around 1840s, I believe, um, the census starts hitting some changes when it comes to those racial categories, which weren't at first even a um, an important section of it because a lot of those people were um, seen as property, people of color, black folks. But once you get to about 1840, there's a scientist who is, like I said, hell bent on the idea that mixed race people are infertile, that if they are born of a black parent and a white parent, that they will go insane at some point in their lives because uh, they just can't handle it. This whole tragic mulatto thing comes out of that as well. And it comes to the point where this man believes that he can somehow prove that this is true. And so he starts pushing his ideas on some of the folks in Congress. And some of the folks in Congress are saying, oh, hold on a minute, I can use this to keep slavery going, to expand slavery to the West. You know, so they wanna do this because they know that it is going to be beneficial to them. However, this stays on the census for, I believe, was it 70 years without any evidence of this whole theory being proved. Like nobody's proving this. There's nobody at the end who says, oh, we just found out that we were actually wrong because guess what? Those so-called mulattoes have been getting together and their children are being born. So <laughs> what do we do now? Oh, I don't know. Let's just take it out. Forget it. Forget it happened. Forget it happened. Um, yeah, I just like to jump in because I think the whole politicizing race thing is very important. Um, like when we think about the decision making of our country and who's even considered a human being um, when it comes down to distributing resources or even being seen as having a, a life at all. I think that's very important to how people are deeply affected. And I think emotionally charged um, is just not enough of a description for me. I don't think there's words that could truly describe um, the pain that has come out of the political um, decision-making process on who lives, who doesn't, who's looked at as uh, inhuman and who's not, who's um, given chances to live and, and you know, have families and thrive and uh, create a sense of wealth. And um, I think Black people for so long, along with um, 
mixed race people, uh, black and white, I refuse to use the term mulatto. Um, I think they've gone through this um, idea of what it means to be black. I think the reflection of blackness has been um, conditioned to be thought of as negative and to be thought of as a way that you cannot live. It's just a means of mere survival. Um, and so I think when we think about why people have chosen to pass is to um, buy into privilege, to buy into quality of life, to buy into living versus surviving, to buy into having a life um, and, and and, you know, just being you. Um, and so I think that's why people have chosen to do so when they had the opportunity rather than um, really taking into account what Blackness means and how, how beautiful that truly is. Yes, I completely agree with Tiana on this. Um, there are many different examples of people who have done this for the exact reasons that she's describing. Um, for example, there was an author from the Harlem Renaissance who, at, you know, at the time in the 20s, he was proud. He was proud to be Black. However, he was very pale. And at some point, he just got tired of fighting. He got tired of fighting for our rights. He got tired of fighting for um, any kind of authority on anything. And at some point, just decided he was going to leave society altogether. He was not going to tell anybody whether he was white or Black. If they asked him, he said, I'm a human being. This just started happening, which means if you tell somebody I'm just a human being, in that time, in the 30s and 40s, being just a human being meant you were white. You can't be just a human being and be a Black person at the time. So that just meant that he was forfeiting his right to tell anybody who he was racially, right? Because he recognized this as being a social construct. He also recognized that this is a caste system. You know, the, the, the United States is being outed right now by many different historians, such as uh, Isabel Wilkerson's book on caste is, is out right now talking about this. But basically, this is a social construct based on race or racial difference created in order to keep people in place um, when it comes to economics, when it comes to every aspect of their lives. And so when you have something like this, the best possible way to keep it going and to keep people um, hating each other and to keep people from helping each other is to somehow tell somebody, oh, but you're better than them because at least you're not black. At least you're not this, at least you're not that. So each step of the way, each person, each rung gets to look down on somebody else. The only ones who don't get to look down on anybody else are the black folks. And if you want to go really deep into that, you're going to go black, uh, into transphobia. Black trans women are at the bottom, the very bottom of this rung because of all of these reasons and because of sexism, homophobia, and transphobia. And so we have all these people playing into it. And this is the reason why there's that emotionally charged reaction. It comes to their benefits, the privileges that you get based on where you are on that rung. You know, it's so fascinating to me that eliminating the word, we don't like the word, but eliminating the, eliminating the category and of mulatto or mixed race people, because we don't like that other word, from the census, in effect, eliminates their existence and forces them 
into another category. This is really what your study is about, Gabby, right? That they get forced into the world gets bifurcated. It's black or it's white. So pick a side. And, and, you know, all of the laws that you mentioned in your study, like um, the racial integrity law in 1924 in Virginia, and your study mentions that there's about another 17 states that have variations on that law in that time period in the early 20th century. Um, that's where we get this idea that one drop of black blood and you are black um, comes from, right? That's what your study talks about. So this idea that if we eliminate this sort of gray category, this sort of much more complex vision of our life as Americans, of our society as Americans, that we are all kinds and of diversity and we make it pick a side, you know, mulatto is, dis- is gone. Any version of that word is gone. It's Negro. That's the word they used at the time or white. It basically takes, and I want you, I wonder if you could talk about this. So it takes these people out of an identity they may have felt and experienced into this one category. And in, of course, doing so kind of renders them in, in, less visible. I wouldn't say invisible, but less visible for data collecting purposes. Is that your sense from your study? Yeah, and, Tiana wanted to say something real Yeah, sure, Tiana, jump in. Um, I was just going to say, I think the removal of the word mulatto on the census is really just America's refusal to acknowledge how complex uh, this country's racial uh, demographics truly are. Like when you go back to slavery, you have the masters raping black women and vice. You got a lot of things happening. You have a lot of race mixing going on, regardless of what people are going to tell you. So when we think about how many mixed race people there really were, um, even dating back to slavery, you could see how complex that is to define someone. I think the removal, it definitely even affects my life. I just actually went through having to click off whether I'm black or white on a form and I always pick black. Um, That's just how the world has seen me. I don't get to live in my whiteness, even though I am half white, but I don't get to live that way. I don't have the privilege of buying into what whiteness actually means in this country. So I always click black um, on a form, but I think it is more complex than we even want to admit as a country um, and how mixed race people actually are, Um, even white people. uh, When you look into their own um, ethnic backgrounds, it's more mixed than they're willing to admit. But I think whiteness is a mask um, for the complexity um, that we all actually have in us. Um, And even when going back to like the caste system, I think um, when you brought up um, trans black women being at the bottom, I think also this internalization of being white is being right, being white is having to live. So we have as in my opinion, Black people internalize this notion um, and hence colorism. Uh, The darker you are, um, the less person you are. The lighter you are, the closer to whiteness you are, um, the better, more intelligent, um, more quality of life that people, that society is willing to give you, is is willing to allow you um, to buy into. Um, And I think it's it's really sad. Um, I see it all the time. Um, and it really does affect people mentally, emotionally, and physically when you think about how internalized and how deep um, the, the, the ideas and the ideology of what Blackness is in this country um, 
black people have began to accept um, the reflection that white America has set up for them. Um, and I think even the protests this summer were um, really telling of how tired people really are um, and, and how much people are trying to break from um, this long, long standing um, definition, culture, ideology that people have set up for them. I think people are trying to break from that. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that something that people don't want to think about is just how entrenched this is. So for example, I'm going to go back to late 1800s. So during the Reconstruction era, you know, after Civil War, um, there were some Black folks who had the opportunity to be in office in the South. So they start getting their roles. They start representing their districts and whatnot. However, the white citizens of this country decided that they did not want to hold that up. They didn't want to be governed by Black folks. So the best way that they could drum this up, you know, ruin it for them, was to terrify every white person they could into thinking that if they let Black people be in charge, who knows what's going to happen? They could steal your daughters, your wives. They could have kids with your family members. They could be all over the place. Next thing you know, they'll be living in your house. Oh, they could murder you on the spot. That's when you see this spike in lynchings. And that's also when you see one of the first insurrections on the Capitol is at that exact time. So they have an insurrection. They depose of all of the Black lawmakers and they replace them with the Confederate leaders again. Right. And so all of those fear tactics are what I'm talking about in this presentation. The fear tactics start ramping up over and over because of the great migration. More black folks moving north, moving west, and people start noticing that they can't always tell who's who anymore. They thought they knew. They thought they could look at your face and be like, oh, she's definitely black. But it turns out if you're light enough, no one knows. Nobody has any idea. So they were coming up with ways to figure out who's black, who's not. Talking about fingernails. They were like, check their ears. You know, you'll find out, oh, I bet you if you look on the other side of their hand, it's going to be a different color from the top. They had all kinds of ways that they supposedly said they could know. However, by the time it got to 1930, people were starting to realize, oh, they were pulling one over. There's had newspaper headlines everywhere talking about, oh, 10,000 Black people passing for white each day in New York City. All kinds of headlines all over these cities talking about this because people were afraid. They were afraid that someone could somehow trick them, be duplicitous. Somehow um, they thought it was a game, like as if we were trying to, um, to fool them and joke with them. In reality, these people are trying to survive, right? So this is where we're coming to that change. When they realize that they can't do anything about it, that's when the census changes effectively in 1930. I think what's also happening too, and it, it, the fear that you're talking about, the anxiety that's mounting over um, the future of the white race, right? That's really what we're talking about. If all this mixing happens, there's not this, what happens to um, the, and you know, air quotes all over the place here today, people, um, the white race, what's also happening is white women are getting educated and having fewer children. And so that is also ramping up this anxiety, right? I mean, one of the reasons counting how many people of either um, black heritage or of mixed heritage becomes an issue is because the numbers of white, the white numbers are shrinking. 
Um, and so you really, I, I, I think this issue of anxiety is one that has been with us throughout our history um, and is as largely attributable to the origins of, um, of slavery in America. I mean, once you create this system, um, anytime you now have to deal with a freed people, that for, for white America, that's especially for white, you know, supremacist America, that's high anxiety. Um, Tiana, you wanted to, to add something to this conversation. Yeah, I think what Gabby said about all the little tricks that people tried to pull to, um, you know, thinking they know someone's black or not, I think that just really reflects how false of a narrative whiteness actually is. It's like a veal um, to hide the reality that it's just buying into power, privilege, and wealth. Um, that's what whiteness, in my opinion, is, that people get to buy into it, hence it being socially constructed. And we rarely see that um, with people struggling to look at people's fingernails, look at the back of someone's hand, look at someone's feet. Um, I think that's very telling of people creating a false narrative of, um, well, you know, we could get these people or, you know, they're trying to trick us when in reality, I think white America has always tried to trick themselves into believing this superiority um, that doesn't actually exist. And so if you can't tell if someone's black or not, um, you know, by just looking at their physicalities, then I think the reality is, is that it's all mental. Um, it's all socially constructed again. So you've created this storyline, you've created this violent, scary, detrimental um, playbook that you've decided to live your life by. Um, so that you feel and have been reinforced to um, live as superior human beings um, looking down on others when in reality, if you couldn't even tell, um, then nothing mattered. So you're treating this person as a human um, when they're actually black because you have tricked yourself into thinking um, well, what you believe is that they're white. And so I think I think it's very complex, but I think it's um, very important to realize that if you just didn't know, you treat them as a regular human. So um, it's very deeply fabricated, this idea of whiteness and who could be in it, who can't be, um, you know, having rules about this and the three-fifths and the one-drop rule and um, looking at people's skin tone. I think it's so... Um, it's scary, like it's kind of gives me a giggle because it's so um, fabricated, um, but it has real effects on people's life. Um, but it's, it's very interesting um, how much of a reality it is, um, how socially constructed that really is. And it's never really gone away. I mean, we've seen study after study in recent decades, even in the 90s when you, um, you were talking about the sort of awareness of multiculturalism and diversity that emerges in the 1990s. You also have these studies about, you know, the bell curve and, you know, about, about intellectual ability, about athletic ability. Um, in, in your study, Gabby, you talk about... Um, uh, this poor woman, I, I don't remember her name, which case it is, that has to basically strip in order to be inspected, in, you know, to prove her her race. And we know that they're in hospitals and um, in doctor's offices and elsewhere. They had people, right, that got hired for their ability to tell, as, as you mentioned, the tricks, you know, and so forth. And we see this even today with um, trans athletes who have to prove their authenticity, right, to participate 
in in uh, athletic events. So, I mean, some of these ideas that they may seem like to, to, to our listeners, they may seem like, oh, oh, that's in the past. They're very much still with us. Um, very much still with us. Can you talk a little bit about that case that I'm referring to and the, and the ways in which the court made this sort of woman have to demonstrate her, her race? Yes. So this case is called Rhinelander v. Rhinelander. And so this happened in the 1920s in New York City. There was a woman named Alice and she was dating a man who um, was the son of some, I, I guess you would say millionaires or, or something at the time in New York City, that people with, with the names you want to know, basically. So he had the hots for Alice. He was visiting her all the time. Um, next thing you know, he's like, how about we get married, but don't tell anybody. Like, let's just keep it on the down low was basically his idea. They thought they were going to get away with it. Turns out everybody in that town knew. So it wasn't like they got away with anything. Soon as the news gets back to his dad, his dad's like, no, cut it short. I want you to get an annulment. And the only way you can get an annulment instead of a divorce is to somehow prove that that person was screwing you over in some way. Like they had lied to you in order to get married to you. So they decided to say that she tricked him and told him that she was white, which she did not. He knew this entire time that she was mixed. He knew her parents. He'd been to her house. He met her sister. He knew all this. However, he was saying to the court that he had no idea. And so at this, at this trial, basically they were trying her for fraud, you know, in order to get this annulment. So they bring this woman up and they say, okay, so if we can just by looking at her tell that she's black, uh, then he has no case against her. So even though this was going to play out in her favor, if they could tell, this also was publicly humiliating because the public was in the gallery watching. The news had it everywhere. So they, they had this woman stripped naked to the waist so that they could look at her nipples to see if they could discern her race by looking at her chest. Um, they humiliate, excuse me, humiliated her. Um, and she also had to get photos done of herself looking as prim and proper as ever with her parents and, and with her family so that they could show, look, she's a human being who deserves respect, you know, for this trial. So she went through the whole thing. They, the, the press stalked the, both of them for about 10 years, uh, for most of the 20s, yeah. And um, they ended up finally getting a divorce later on. But yeah, the husband lost this annulment suit because it was quite obvious he knew. They were reading the letters. He knew. Um, but the divorce came later because he basically, um, he deserted her. So they got divorced, I believe, through Las Vegas, because at the time you didn't need both signatures and were done with each other after that. Um, it was just, it was on everybody's minds in New York. So there were... Um, a ton of other lawsuits similar to this one um, throughout New York and throughout the United States. There were some in California, Chicago. Um, I even saw some headlines down in Texas. So it wasn't, New York wasn't the only places it happening. This was a huge deal to everyone. And this gets us right up to the Loving case, right? In the um, yes. early 1960s, because um, of the anti-miscegenation laws, the, the laws that prevented interracial marriage, um, really with the design of no race mixing, no, no mixed blood um, that legally ends with that case. But all of these cases, I mean, I, I thought about that woman a lot after I read your presentation. I, I kept thinking, what becomes of a woman 
who not only loses her marriage, which you write about, the, the relationship is over. And, you know, so you've got to sort of recover from the loss of someone you may have loved and a future you may have imagined for yourself. But then you're also publicly humiliated and written about in the press. Like what, I don't know if you know what became of her, but. Um, yeah. yeah, she, um, she did not live a very long life, unfortunately. I believe that she was in a car accident or uh, I can't remember. No, he, the husband died in a car accident a few years after the final divorce. She lived a little bit longer, but she suffered for a lot of her life. Um, you know, people could recognize her. She was in the paper for quite some time. When you think about all of these laws about um, who you can marry, where you can live, where, you know, people being chased from legitimately um, elected roles in politics, all, all of this designed to sort of, um, really narrow the range of possibilities for people of color in this country's history. It, it's, I understand, you, you almost can understand why those with the ability to pass would say, I, I don't want to fight anymore, as Tiana pointed out, and you pointed out, you know, fighting a revolution, whenever you try to change society, it is exhausting. Revolutionaries on average last about two years before they just burn out um, on all of that. Um, Tiana, did you want to add to this? Yeah, um, just to go back to the case, I know Debbie mentioned that she was humiliated and stripped, and that's so not new um, for Black people in this country. I mean, being put up on an auction block, um, naked, ripped away from your family, stripped from your husband or wife, from your children, beaten to death, raped, mutilated, that's all not new. And so when we think about the reality of Black people as a collective, although there's ranging experiences, there's ranging skin tones, there's ranging um, everything, like no one has the same um, story, even though we're all living in the same place and we all may face similar um, things that were socially constructed. But I do think it's important to realize how not new this is. And so when you think about how, um, you know, this nation is now, um, I think people are so tired of being humiliated and put up on an auction block. And when we think about what type of role media has always played in stripping Black people of their dignity, of their humanness, of, um, of their life, um, how do you recover from that? How do you manage that type of pain, that type of humiliation, that type of embarrassment, not only individually, but as a collective? How do you fight this constantly? How do you fight this when it, it really does affect your daily life? And so when we think about even marriage laws, no mixing, I think that's how deep it goes is choosing who someone has is, you know, willing to love, or, you know, you can't love this person, or you can't be with this person, you can't have a family with this person. And so when we think about how deep this truly travels um, into Black experience, whether you're a mixed race or not, I think it's, it's scary, it's painful to even talk about or acknowledge. Um, um, media just plays such a huge um, point in this is publicly humiliating and dehumanizing black people as a whole. And so how do you go, how do you fight that? How do you go up against that? I think this is such an important point. I'm really glad you raised that about um, that this has a very long history of the dehumanization of 
of an entire group of people um, all the way all the way back to putting them on auction blocks is, you know, um, so humiliating somebody in the way that poor Alice is humiliated is not really an, is not new, not not and not done. I mean, um, I think that's a really super important point. Yeah, I want to bring this, um, I want to bring up two different people's stories just to try and show what happens to the folks who choose to pass. Uh, um, so some of these examples are people who were in the public eye and nobody had a clue. So let's talk about Patrick Francis Healy. So Patrick Francis Healy was a priest. He went to, I believe, Holy Cross in, in um, uh, Lawrence, I believe, or was it Worcester? In Worcester, sorry. He went to Holy Cross in Worcester. Um, he was brought there because his father was a white slave owner who owned him and his siblings as well as the mother, right? So they, he and his siblings were all very light-skinned. Light uh, the mother was already the product of rape to begin with. So it, it just kept on going down the line. So he sends his kids up North. This is, mind you, right before the Civil War. This is against the law to do this. He sends his kids to get educated at Holy Cross um, because he is an Irish Catholic man who owns slaves. <laughs> so they go to the church. The church decides that they are going to pretend like they don't know that these kids are Black. Um, at the same time that they're doing this, they are taking those students to uh, what, 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 what I think it's... Um, blackface performances. They're taking them to all kinds of stuff. And mind you, these are some young kids. So they're getting indoctrinated into this idea of whiteness. They decide that they will disown their own mother. All of those kids disown that mother, the slave mother back home. Uh, they do not keep in contact with her. They in fact start raising one another. All of the siblings end up in the church except for one. And Patrick Francis Healy goes on to become the president of Georgetown University. Nobody knew he was black. Nobody. He didn't tell anybody. So nobody knew until I believe the 60s, 1960s, <laughs> about that. And he was already long gone by that point. So the second person is the unofficial first black graduate at Vassar College. That's Anita Hemmings. So this woman is from the Boston area. She lived, she grew up in Roxbury. And she was a librarian at the BPL uh, for a while there. And she had this life's dream of going to school at Vassar. She was very smart. Her whole community was behind her and trying to give, help her pay to go to this school. She goes to the school. Everybody at the school thinks she's top notch. She speaks like five different languages. She is apparently, according to all the kids at school, the most beautiful woman there. Everybody thinks she's the most beautiful one. All the men want to be with her. Then she gets one week to graduation day and her roomie, her roommate starts having some questions. She's like, okay, hold on. I don't like how you're doing this, this and that and the other and everybody likes you. I'm going to have your family investigated. So she has daddy send an investigator back to Boston and they find out her family's black. And what do they decide to do? They try to get her kicked out a week before graduation. So uh, Anita has to go to the administration to plea for her for forgiveness, to plea for, for herself to graduate. And she, the only reason she got to do this is because they thought of how scary it would be to tell everybody, guess what? Your white kid was rooming with a black girl. Nobody wants to know that, right? So they kept, they kept it on under wraps. 
And um, her roommate was so bitter that when she found out that Anita Hemming's daughter also went to Vassar later on, passing for white, she went and outed her too. So this happened twice over in the family. But Anita doesn't let this hurt her enough. Uh, she decides she's going to pass for the rest of her life. So does her daughter and so does her granddaughter. So uh, fast forward to present day. I reach out to the descendant of Anita Hemings. We start having a conversation. She tells me she didn't find out that she was had any Black ancestry until I believe the 90s because her grandmother passed away and her bestie was like, I should probably tell you something. Wow. Her grandma was Black. Surprise. So this is somebody who saw herself as white this entire time. She still sees herself as white. However, she has been doing this research and it looks like these folks might have even been the descendants of the Hemings of Monticello. This is Thomas Jefferson, Sally Hemings. Yes. Uh, I was so going to ask that. Yep. I was going to ask you that. That kind of jumped out at me. Wow. Same family. Well, this brings us back to this, this bigger conversation that we kind of started with around this issue of passing. And Tiana was saying that she knows people who have done it and it kind of makes her sad. And, um, and I, and I, I said, we would circle back and here we are. I mean, how do we, how do you want us to feel about the Hemmings or um, the two women, the, the three generations of women you were just talking about, or some of the people, you know, Tiana, when you see them um, make these decisions, how it's very complicated. Um, how should we feel about it? What do you think about all of this? Why do people do it? What it, All of it. So, I mean, half of my family are women who do, they're white passing. They don't actively pass. People automatically assume that they are white. Um, this, this is my cousins. These are my nieces. These are, this is my grandmother. Most of these people, a lot of people make the assumption that they are Italian or uh, any other uh, group of white folks that, that, that they would feel more comfortable with connecting them with. Um, none of these folks are saying that they're doing it because they think being white is better. <laughs> they're doing it because they're scared or because someone just mistook them for something else. And so I'm not angry at those folks. I'm not, I have nothing against them. They're just fighting against the same system I'm fighting against. Now, the only time I have a problem with it is when they turn around and start being the ones to hurt us too when they want to take up the oppressor's cause, that's when I get upset. Um, that is when I'm not one to say, you know, you do you, because I see what they're doing. They're doing the exact same thing that poor whites would be doing. So for those folks, I don't have much sympathy, but for the folks who are, you know, in the same boat as I am and who aren't actually trying to get one over on anybody, they're just trying to maybe survive a police stop. I understand. Um, for me, Gabby, I completely agree with you as far as um, not feeling as sympathetic towards the people who take up the oppressor's cause, because I've definitely seen that. I cannot, I cannot speak for anyone else's feelings towards this, because I understand in my own personal thoughts that it's a means for survival. It's, it's just the want to live and be you and express yourself, love who you love, to have privilege because who doesn't want that? Um, and that's the truth. I mean, I think we all want that. Um, and so I could completely understand. Um, but what saddens me is that in passing, there's also a fear 
let's be real, of being outed, of being questioned, of admitting maybe one day that you are Black. And that completely shifts people's perspective on you. Um, Although my skin is brown, um, the minute I admit I'm Black, because I could be perceived as racially ambiguous, um, Hispanic, Indian, um, you know, whatever people want to identify me as, um, I think for me, it's important that I say when I admit I'm black, when I say I'm black, um, proudly, it immediately changes people's perception on me. I've heard you, well, you're actually pretty for a black girl or wow, you're actually smart or, um, people just doubting my intelligence saying that, you know, I'm prettier than the average black girl. That's what they really mean is that they perceive black women to be ugly. Um, and that's to me saying that it's just not a compliment. I think, for me, it's sad to not be your authentic self. I think that's hindering to your own well-being. Um, passing could be scary. I've seen people just completely hide the reality of their life at home. Um, and that's horrible to me is that you have to silence um one half of your reality. And that even goes for me. Um, you know, oh, you're white. Um, and that is a part of my reality. And I do, I live that too. My mother's white. I have 10 white aunts. Um, and then I have my dad's side and, you know, people are ranging in skin tones, but they're all black. And so that's a part of my reality. Um, I have two cousins who are mixed race and one just so happens to be white skin, green eyes and blonde hair and his younger brother has darker skin than I um, dark brown hair dark um, brown eyes and so people really are shocked and uncomfortable with the fact that they're brothers that they share the same blood um, <laughs> that they have the same mother and father and so just their reality they're being their authentic self that's their truth they're both black um, and you know they're both half white as well and one just so happens happens to be acknowledged as white and the other always acknowledged as black. And um, that's a hard reality for them. I've seen them struggle with that. Um, and even for me, I've even struggled with, oh, like, how do people perceive me um, when I was younger? But I've just happened to be happy enough and have the experience to live in my full truth. Um, and that's not always easy. So I completely understand why some people will pass, but I also think it's very important for me to acknowledge and to love and to um, live in my blackness just as much as I would live in anything else. Don't you think it's somewhat transformative though also? I mean, if you are passing or living these two realities that you were talking about, at some point your mind has to be shaped by that experience. I mean, you're, you're kind of pointing right at that, right? That, okay, if you're being your authentic self, then you're owning all parts of your existence. If you are passing, you're only living one part of your existence. And sooner or later, doesn't the other part of your life either fade or, or die off? And what a loss that is, what a real loss that is. Yeah, Gabby. Yeah, I want to talk about that. So the the man that that inspired this presentation that I'd done this research on was my great grandfather. He was passing for white for employment in Philadelphia when he 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 came to Philadelphia as part of the Great Migration, and so he was up there. The thing is, he was very proud to be a black man. However, uh, he decided that he would just omit his race. So if they asked him. Um, 
what his race was or why he didn't fill out the race part on the paper. He just let them assume what he was instead of saying that he was black. And that was just because he needed a job. He had a family, you know? And so one of the things that came home to me in this research was that I realized I did not truly know my grandparents or my great grandparents because of this experience. My grandmother passed for white, pretended to be Italian in order to get apartments in New York City. This is in the 60s, by the way. At the time, people hated Puerto Ricans in New York City, so she was pretending to be Italian. My grandfather is a darker skinned Dominican man with a Jamaican background. So he is, uh, he was uh, darker than me. Um, so he would hide somewhere. My grandmother would go to get the apartment and the only child who could come with her to look at the apartments was the eldest because she was the lightest skin. So the eldest daughter would go with her to get the apartment, but since she didn't speak enough English, the daughter was translating for each, each part of this. But whenever they got found out, there goes the apartment, there goes the home because somebody would find out that they were mixed or that they had a black man in the household. So this is something that played out all the way to present day. I had issues with this in Florida in the nineties where my grandfather was arrested for supposedly loitering when he was actually just getting his ID at the DMV. My grandmother was uh, often mistaken for a white woman enough to the point where people would see her with her granddaughter who was light skinned and think that makes sense. And then they see my grandfather with that same granddaughter and he was pulled over and almost arrested for kidnapping. So this is something that played out in my family all the way to present day. And I see the pain coming through in heart disease. I see the, the pain coming through in alcoholism, anxiety, depression. It plays out in our health. So this is shortening people's lifespans at the same time because of the stress and because of the discrimination. I'd like to jump in because I think what your was it your great grandfather i think yeah. what's so important about his story is how much of a cost there really is to be white just as much as there is to be black there's certain expectations of oneself um that we have paired with whiteness um and so if you steer from that, even if you are white, um, people look at you a certain way. You're not accepted socially, um, just like any white person who associates with someone Black, whether they're friends, whether they're in love with them, whether um, anything, um, whether they work with them, um, you know, whether they say hello, that uh, deemed you also unacceptable. And so even white people were pushed out. Um, and so when you think about someone who's black, who has to pass, who has to buy into whiteness, there's such a cost um, mentally, emotionally, and physically, like you said, that really does play out into health. It plays out um, in all types of ways. I can't imagine um, the fight inside um, daily just to simply survive. And so that's a theme is survival for Black people. Um, and I think we still see that now is that everything is done as a means of mere survival. You just want to live. You want to be able to eat. You want to be able to come home to your kids. If you get stopped by a police officer and you could pass, I'm sure you will. Um, because everyone knows the real repercussions of being Black and just living, of, of just breathing. And so the brown skin is a reflection of our awful reality of um, real, you know, realities that people actually have to face, um, which is losing their life, um, whether that's financially or literally um, death. 
and, and that's harsh is that there's such a cost to this. Um, so you buy into it, you lose. Uh, you don't buy into it, you also lose. And so where where do you go from there? I think it's it's harsh. It's very real. Um, and either way, um, you, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. <laughs> Yeah, I just want to say, so this exact um, theme is the uh, source for this book called A Chosen Exile by Alison Hobbs. The entire book is telling stories of different people who had to choose whether or not they were going to pass, what they gave up, what they gained, but it was mostly about who they left behind and what happened when they decided to drop half of their life. And so this is talking about the pain that lasts for generations. Um, you'll also see that in the book, The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. Is that the kind of the, the takeaway you'd like people who are listening to to have from our conversation today that that um, this the impact of all of this is not just on the individual, but on the families and the generations who come after? Yes, yes, this is something that affects it's a ripple effect. This will affect all of the generations. It will affect their loved ones, who they choose to marry. Uh, it affects this entirely. Uh, some folks will choose maybe to not continue living their life for this very reason, for the from the confusion of this. And so it's it's actually become kind of a trope in media um, and a lot of films throughout the decades. There are films about people who pass and about people who are mixed race and how this is a torment um, on the outside and the inside to their parents, to their family. Um, this is something that was a popular theme, I'd say from, what is it, the 30s all the way through to the 70s. We still have a few actually, one called The Human Stain. Yeah, marinate in that one. <laughs> That's a, that one's with Nicole Kidman, by the way. <laughs> So yeah, there's a ton of these stories and actually they're going to be, uh, there's going to be another movie about passing. The story passing by Nella Larson is going to be coming out on film with Ruth Naga and um, Tessa Thompson. They're, they will be playing the two characters who either choose to pass or choose not to pass. And they show those two different paths happening in front of you. So that's a story from the twenties that depicts this exact message. Who does this hurt? What happens afterwards? And how long does this last? This has been such a powerful conversation. I really appreciate both of you for being so open and generous um, about your own observations and, pers and personal stories. Um, Tiana, did you want to add? Yeah, just a last word is that I I, re I very much agree with Gabby that it lasts generations. Um, again, it's so uh, it's tethered actually to people's daily experiences. Um, and I think it's also important to think about how whiteness is dependent on blackness. So there's um, they're tethered together. And I think we need to um, I think white America needs to accept that that their privilege and their superiority is actually dependent on um, Black people um, and, and brown people and people of color in this country. Um, I, I think what I want people to leave with is that um, choose what feels right for you. Um, I cannot speak for anyone else's experience, pain, background, um, or successes in life. But what I can do is know that, um, try to be your authentic self, um, 
it'll feel right. Um, and I think uh, the successes that come to you, they'll come to you because you are you um, and that you're living in your truth because you really only have one life. And I think it's sad to see anyone let go of one half of their life or another half. And so try to be as full and as whole as you can. Um, love your blackness, um, love your whiteness if you're mixed race, um, you know, just love who you are, love your family. Um, accept your truth and live in that. Um, and I think it is hard. It's a harsh reality for people, but I think there's also beauty um, in seeing yourself for who you are and, and seeing your family accepting pain as well as you accept love um, and success. So that's what I'd like people to leave with. That's a very powerful message. And one of the things that um, I find really striking about our conversation today, especially as we are entering Black History Month, is how much the past is with us in the present, how much these issues are not resolved, um, and we continue to live with and struggle through them. Uh, and so I appreciate this conversation today as sort of an opening um, hopefully to more conversations about the importance of understanding the past in order to not just make sense of the present, but to solve the future. Um, so thank you both. Uh, I appreciate your time here today. Thanks for Take having good me. Care. Thank you. Thank you. Got an idea for an episode or want to join our team? Email us at livingoutloud at merrimack.edu. Executive producers are Deborah Michaels and Tiffany Begensterns. Audio engineering and editing by Michael Senoff. Living Out Loud is made possible with the generous support of a Provost Innovation Grant and assistance from the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning.